to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 74th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, we are honored to welcome Meg Spencer Dixon to talk about time management for lawyers. Meg Spencer Dixon is a lawyer and consultant specializing in time management seminars for lawyers and legal professionals. Meg received her AB with honors from Princeton and her JD from Stanford Law School. Then she clerked for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and practiced in the litigation and energy groups of the law firm formerly known as Shaw Pittman in Washington, D.C. In 1992, she founded Spencer Consulting, www.timemanagementforlawyers.com, and since then has been providing seminars for law firms, CLE providers, government agencies, and corporate law departments on time management, project management, stress management, and how to run effective meetings. Welcome to the Digital Edge, Meg. Thank you so much for having me, Jim and Sharon. I am delighted to be with you. Well, we're glad to have you with us, and I am especially delighted, Meg, because I am probably the most ruthlessly efficient person I know. But every so often when I look at my always over 300 tasks, I simply pound my head on the desk. So please tell me, what's the most important thing to know about time management? Well, first, it's important to realize that there really is no such thing as time management. You don't manage time. Think of time management as self-management with respect to time. Therefore, a key component of time management is the ability to make careful, mindful choices about how you use your time. One way to think about it is this. We've all heard the phrase, time is money, and there are lots of things wrong with that phrase. One of the things that's wrong with it is this. It is possible to cease spending money for a given period of time. However, it is impossible, as long as you're alive, to cease using time, even sitting in your office, staring out the window, doing what most people think of as nothing, really is a form of something from a time use perspective. So what that means is we're always using time. So at some level, we're also deciding how we're using our time. And we're either making those time use decisions consciously because we invest the time up front to figure out what we want to accomplish and strategize the best way to get there and do our best to stick with our plan. Or we throw up our hands and say, who can plan because people pop in the door all the time and the emails keep coming up and I just have to put out whatever fire is burning most brightly. Doing it the second way is making your time use decisions by default. And it's really crucial to make your time use decisions consciously and not by default. Because how you end up deciding how to use your time at work, even moment by moment, day by day, week by week, directly impacts how your career goes. 
and how you end up using your time outside of work, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, directly impacts how the rest of your life goes. So what's crucially important is taking the time to figure out what you want to accomplish so you can then make conscious decisions to engage in activities that bring you closer to your goals. Well, let's talk about one of the greatest challenges of our business times. What are the best practices for keeping up with the deluge of email that we all seem to receive? Oh, sure, Jim. That's that's a good one. Well, let me give you, say, three of the most important best practices. The first one is to apply what's known as the two-minute principle. I heard it first as a rule, but I downgraded it to a principle. (laughs) And what this means is when you're sitting down to actually go through your email, doing what I call processing the email, which, by the way, I distinguish from what I call triaging the email. Triaging is when you rush into your office and see if there's anything that can't wait until your next, you know, after your next meeting, or triaging is when you surreptitiously hold your iPhone under the desk and scroll through your emails. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking when you're actually saying, okay, time to go through the 67 emails that have arrived since yesterday. When you process your email, what you want to do is look at it and say, does this generate a task that I can do within two minutes-ish or less? And I say ish because the time period may wax and wane depending on how busy you are. If you're crazy busy, you might say 30 seconds. If you're less busy, it might be four or five minutes. But the point is, if there's just a small task you need to do in response to that, be prepared to do that task the first time you look at that email. And you find if you do that, you can knock off quite a few of the emails that are in your inbox without having to go back and look at it and say, okay, what do I need to do? So the two-minute principle is very important. The second is to have some sort of system to keep track of tasks that are generated by email, those tasks that take longer than two minutes that you don't do as an intrinsic part of the processing process. Ideally, you want to have a to-do system, a true task manager, and don't do what I know a lot of people do, which is keep the emails in your inbox to remind you to do the associated task. Because the problem with keeping the emails in your inbox to remind you to do whatever tasks the emails generate is that you're essentially using your email system as your to-do list, and that would work only if two conditions are met. And the first is that all of your to-dos come to you by email which they don't. Some to-dos come to you because you just think of them or somebody tells you something in the hallway or it's part of a, a larger planning process. And the second condition is that all of your emails are indeed to-do items, which they're not. Some of your emails don't require action. Some you're saving for future reference. Some you really could delete, but you're not quite ready to do that yet. And if there's no easy way to distinguish emails that require action from emails that don't require action, that means that you're always running your eye down your inbox and asking yourself, okay, what do I need to do again? And it's not efficient to ask yourself this over and over for the same emails. Every time you do the same thing more than once, there's room for an improvement in efficiency. So the solution to that is keep your tasks in a task manager and don't try to force your email system to serve as a task manager as well as an email system. The third best practice is, and I state this as provocatively as possible, is try to process your emails as infrequently as you think you can get away with it. And what I mean by that is this. What too many people do is they leave their email alerts on all the time, which means they're interrupting their train of thought every single time a new email comes in, no matter how unimportant, and then they get annoyed that they're constantly interrupted and constantly have to resist the temptation to change and respond to the email right away, or they don't even resist the temptation. So what I suggest you do is actually turn off that email prompt, 
don't worry, you will not forget to check your email. And then maybe every half hour or so, if you think you can get away with it for that long, or maybe 45 minutes, or maybe even an hour if you really want to push the envelope, check your email then. And chances are you will find that the world continues to spin on its axis, even if you don't check your email every single moment. And the benefit if you do it this way is you get back that time that would otherwise be interrupted by that email coming in, plus you find that in addition to getting that back, you don't get annoyed about being constantly interrupted. Having said that, if it's your choice to keep your email prompt on so you can respond immediately, if it's part of your pride as being a lawyer to be you know, immediate client service, that's fine. But accept that the cost of that is being interrupted constantly. Because the, the worst of all scenarios is to never having consciously decided to do it, but yet getting annoyed that that's what you've done. So those three are, uh, best practices. One is the two-minute principle. Two is not using your email as a to-do list. And three is don't check your email constantly. Check it periodically throughout the day. Well, I certainly agree with that last one. That is how I operate too. But I use the to-do list, not the email in Outlook. That's how I operate. And that's worked successfully for many years because I use a system of reminders and so forth. And I push when I can push and I add from whatever source, whether it's email or something on the phone or something. But I know a lot of people like to have specific software to manage their to-do list, perhaps other than the Taskless and Outlook. What do you recommend, Meg? Well, that's a question I get asked all the time. And here's what I always say. And they usually say, you know, what's the best software? And I always say, you know, asking for the best to-do list software, it's like asking for the best car. There really is no one best to-do list software that works well for everyone all the time. Since everyone is so different with their own needs and preferences and practices, I think a question underlying the question is, is there some sort of magic bullet software that will work for me when every other one has failed? And the answer to that is definitely no. There is no perfect software out there that if only you started using it, managing your to-do list would suddenly become quick and easy. But having said that, there are many software programs out there that some people swear by. Um, remember the Milk, GTD, uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done, AnyDo, Wonderlist. Some people use Excel spreadsheets, lists and Word documents. And like you, Sharon, I, I like to use the task function in Outlook. And all of these can work perfectly well. Uh, the reason I like the task function in Outlook, which I think is underused and underrated, I found it very flexible and useful over the years, even as the various versions of Outlook moved from 2003 to 2007 to 2010. And it's interesting you say, Sharon, you use reminders for that. I actually advise people, <laughs> well, first of all, whatever works for you. So if it works, don't, don't stop doing it, Sharon. But <laughs> the problem if you have a to-do list and every single to-do list also has a reminder is it's almost overkill. Because if it's on your to-do list and you use the to-do list religiously, that should be where you go to decide how you use your time. If you don't really trust yourself to look at your to-do list and need a reminder on top of it, not only do you end up having that cascading open windows of reminders, but it dilutes the power of the to-do list because you're, you're not really relying on it. You need kind of an extra push to do it. If people want to try to use their Outlook task list more than they already do, an excellent resource for this is the book Total Workday Control with Microsoft Outlook by Michael Linenberger, and he updates this to correspond to each new version of Outlook. I, I highly recommend that. Uh, so the bottom line is there are many software to-do lists that can work for many people, provided you get familiar with it and use it consistently. 
Well, well, forgive me for tromping on your time a little bit, Jim, but I just wanted to say to Meg that the way I use it is everything comes up early in the morning. And at that point, not every task, but every task that has a reminder for that day. And I winnow it down to the top six, the things I know I need to accomplish. And then if I think I can accomplish in that day, I push it. And if I can't accomplish in that day, I push it further. So I'm spending maybe 10 to 15 minutes in the morning to get myself organized. But to me, that's been gold. So I'm sharing my tip anyway. (laughs) And I will say, Sharon, I think that the number of items you try to do each day, six, that's exactly what I recommend. I think too many people, you know, bite off more than they can chew and try to do 20 things. I say, no, try six. If you finish them, you can always go back and add more to your list. So I think six is is the perfect number to start with on your daily to-do list. I feel so much better now, Meg. (laughs) Go go ahead, Jim. (laughs) Sharon, I will tell you that based on a recommendation of our friend Paul Unger, I've been using the iPhone app Task Task. And what that does is allow me to put things in my phone that then appear back in Outlook. So that's been useful for me just to get the tasks recorded when I'm outside of the office. You know what I do, my workaround for that, is uh, I just send an email to myself and then drag that email to tasks in Outlook, and there we go. Well, Meg, how much time should a person really spend working per day? As lawyers, we tend to spend more and more hours at work, but at some point it becomes nonproductive. Is there an ideal number of hours per day that we should realistically target to work? You know, that's a very interesting question. and You know, ultimately it's an unanswerable one. You know, beyond the frustrating but truthful, it depends. But let me explain why it depends. I mean, at some point during every lawyer's working day, his potential for productive work will tend to decline. But exactly when this point occurs and how quickly the lawyer's productivity declines differs from lawyer to lawyer since different individuals have different mental energy levels and different physical energy levels and different inherent capacities for productive work. Even for each individual lawyer, the point at which productivity starts to decline can change from day to day depending on, you know, his overall health that day, how much sleep he got the night before, the lawyer's interest in the work, whether he's distracted or worried about anything, and and even the extent to which the lawyer is acclimated to working long hours. And to make matters even more challenging, even when your productivity declines after hours of work, you can still be productive, but just less productive than earlier in the day. And it's, you know, who am I to say it's unreasonable to continue to work even at that lower productivity level? Of course, this is especially so if you're concerned about billable hours. So the decision about how many hours to invest in working per day is a personal one that every lawyer must make for himself. And there are probably as many ways of making this decision as there are lawyers. Personally, what I found helpful to make this time use calculus is to try to decide in advance what I believe is a reasonable number of hours to work each day and then figure my starting and stopping time that day and then trying my best to do my best work just during the time I plan to work and then actually stopping work at the time I've planned. I rarely, if ever, plan to work more than eight hours a day, but even so, occasionally circumstances conspire that I do end up working more than eight hours, and similarly, there are days when I end up working fewer than eight hours. And Other lawyers and other circumstances may find it makes sense for them to plan to work nine or seven or some other number than hours per day, and only the individual lawyer can say with any confidence whether that number is realistic or optimal. Suppose you're dealing with somebody who has numerous bad time management habits of very long standing. So what do you suggest they do right away to start remedying the problem? Because I'm kind of assuming that for them to try to fix it all at once is going to encourage them not to do anything. 
You know, you're right. Trying to change all your habits at once would be overwhelming and unproductive. Regarding which bad time management habit to fix first, uh, the truth is it really doesn't matter. There are a variety of strategies for determining which one to choose first, whichever one you, you want to fix first, whichever one you think will be easiest to fix first, whichever one you think will be most challenging to fix first, or whichever one will be fastest to fix first. I've seen all of these strategies work for different people. So make a list of all your bad time management habits and prioritize them by whichever criterion you think that will be most useful for you or just you know, throw a dart, metaphorical or, or an actual dart at the list if you want to. The bottom line is it really doesn't matter, uh, especially if procrastination is on the list. People will procrastinate about choosing which one to improve first and they end up not doing any. So just pick one, anyone, and go from there. Would you weigh in quickly on whether it's best to do the hardest task first or the easiest task first? Oh, that's interesting. What a lot of people say is, yeah, I have one big task that I really need to get done, but is it better to, to clear off all these dippy little tasks first so I can you know, attack the really important task with a clear mind? And there are two schools of thought on that subject. I'll, I'll describe both approaches, which are pretty much entirely inconsistent with one another. Try, try each one to see which works better for you, and at any rate, it's better to have two tools in your toolbox. Approach number one is the worst first approach that says it's best to attack the most challenging task first when you're mentally fresh so you can get out of the way as soon as possible. And the, the trick to doing that is don't think too much. Just dive right in before you can second-guess yourself, before you can talk yourself out of it. This is really the better approach since using it consistently will essentially build up your mental muscle so that attacking the hardest task first actually becomes easier over time as you get used to attacking the hardest task early and often. I think it was Ralph Waldo Emerson who said, that which we persist in doing becomes easier. Not that the nature of the task has changed, but our ability to do it has increased. So that's number one. Number two, if you're not quite up to, to doing that, is to do some of the smaller tasks first, but with this huge caveat. Give yourself a specific time at which you will say to yourself, okay, enough of the small tasks, now to turn to the big task. I call this the turnaround time approach. And the way it works is set that time, maybe if you come into the office at 9, maybe 10 a.m. will be your turnaround time. And be aware that at 10 a.m., you'll want to keep on doing the smaller tasks because they're easier. But tell yourself, no, I decided 10 a.m. and I'm not going to second-guess that. Uh, Incidentally, I've borrowed the term turnaround time from mountain climbing techniques. If you're a mountain climber, if you've ever been a vicarious mountain climber, such as reading Craig Cowers Into Thin Air, you know that a good practice for mountain climbing is before you attempt to summit, you and your team decide on a specific time which you will turn around even if you have not achieved the summit. And the reason you want to stick with that is if you go past your turnaround time heading up the mountain, you risk running out of energy and oxygen and daylight by the time you reach the summit. And as one mountaineer put it, getting to the top is optional. Getting back down is mandatory. Uh, So you don't want want to second-guess yourself. Uh, So anyway, don't second-guess yourself when you tell yourself at 10 a.m. you're going to stop the little tasks and turn to that big task that you really were procrastinating on for for that hour. All right. Well, let's, let's take a break for just a moment, and we'll be right back. 
Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is time management for lawyers, and our guest is Meg Spencer-Dixon, a time management consultant to lawyers and legal professionals. Meg, a typical simple litigation engagement, how much time would you estimate a project management process would take? That's a very interesting question, Sharon, and ultimately an unanswerable one beyond the, you know, it depends of it. And this is so even for a typical simple litigation engagement, assuming such a thing exists and that we could agree on how to define it. But uh, let me explain why it depends and why it's really unanswerable. The time that the project management process takes depends on a variety of highly variable factors, how experienced the lawyer is and the members of the project team are with the project management process, how experienced the lawyer and the members of the project team are with the legal and logistical issues involved in litigation, the number and types of unexpected occurrences that arise as they do even in the simplest litigation, and the willingness and ability of the client to agree to modify the scope or the budget or the timing of the litigation engagement. So those factors can vary so much, and each of them has an impact on how long the project management process takes. In addition, it's important to realize that many aspects of the project management process are actually intrinsic parts of providing legal services in the first place. Things like coming up with a litigation strategy and delegating legal tasks to team members, communicating with team members as those legal tasks are ongoing, uh, analyzing unexpected issues as they arise, and strategizing how to manage them. Using a project management process means that these actions are done on a methodical rather than a scattershot basis. And there's probably no litigation engagement in which the managing attorney isn't using some form of project management, even if that attorney doesn't label it as project management. So even if it could be somehow calculated that, for example, 50% of the time spent on a litigation is for activities that could be considered as part of the project management process, that doesn't mean that the engagement would take half as much time if it were done without explicitly using project management techniques. In fact, the underlying theory of project management is that when it's used well, the total time spent on a project, including the time spent on the project management aspects of the project, is expected to be on average less than the time the project would take if project management processes were not used. Finally, even if using project management processes means that a litigation project takes more time than otherwise, as you know might be the case when the lawyer is moving up the learning curve of project management, that investment of time may well be highly worthwhile if the use of project management processes improves client satisfaction or the, the lawyer's realization rate, and that can be done by managing the client's expectations regarding the scope and the budget and the timing and the ultimate outcome of the litigation, because all of that is under the umbrella of project management as well. What software do you personally use to help you be more efficient? I t- 
tend to try to minimize the different kinds of software I use just because in years back I was much more cutting edge and I got burned a few times when the particular software I started relying on either changed or became unavailable or got buggy or wouldn't upgrade as I upgraded my computer. So I, I try to keep it as simple as possible. I already mentioned that I like Outlook tasks for the task function, but other than that, the one program that I rely on constantly, I don't want to say I, I would want to live without it, but it's much more enjoyable to live with it, is a wonderful utility called Active Words. And it's at www.activewords.com, and I have no affiliation, no financial interest in it at all. Uh, I just think it's a wonderful program. And basically what it does is when you install Active Words on your computer, what that allows you to do is assign a word or a series of characters, uh, and then when you press the F8 button, what that does is it allows you to replace text, or open a folder, or open a file, or navigate to a website. And I use this all the time so I don't have to drill down to find my different to-do lists or to find my different folders that I use constantly or to, to go to the, the websites that I go to all the time. And you probably won't be surprised to learn that I have a system to create and remember my active words. For example, I assign the active word F. Smith. I think of it as Folder Smith as the active word that opens my folder for the Smith case, and F. Jones as the active word that opens my folder for the Jones case. Another brilliance of active words is that the same character string, the same active word, can open multiple files or multiple folders or a combination of files and folders. So, for example, all of my pending issues, things like upcoming telephone conferences or just simple little projects to do that I have a little to-do list for, I assign as an active word the word pending. And then when I type pending and hit F8, it gives me a pick list of all the folders and files I've assigned to that, and I choose from that which one I want, so I don't even have to remember different active words for that. Similarly, I've assigned the acronym TDL for to-do list as the active word for all of my various project-specific to-do lists in Word. So I don't have to remember all the different to-do lists I have in Word. I just type TDL and then press the F8 button, and the active word program shows me a pick list of all the Word documents that I've assigned that active list to. And these are just some of the many ways I use active words. And to give you some other ideas, if you do go to the activewords.com website and link under reviews, and under the Learn tab, I've looked at that pretty recently, and it contains article after article after article describing ways other people use active words. Uh, so I can't say enough about it. It saves me tons of time every single day. I'm definitely going to look that one up. One of the questions that I hear all the time when, when I teach time management is all of the procrastinators in the audience who just look like this is the dog that hunts them all day long. Uh, they want to know, how do I stop procrastinating? It seems like it's hardwired into some people. How do they stop, Meg? Well, it's funny, Sharon. One of the reasons I'm so interested in time management is I'm a recovered or recovering, I guess, procrastinator. I was a major procrastinator all through school and law school and even my first few years of practice and it wasn't until I hit my my early 30s and just really needed to go to sleep every single night and just didn't want to do all-nighters anymore that I decided it was time to overcome procrastination and I did and I tell you this not to impress you but to impress upon you that I do understand that people listening to this if you're a procrastinator rest assured I remember with crystal clarity what it's like to live as a procrastinator but I also want to encourage you that absolutely it is possible to change and I, when I say as a procrastinator I was a 
serious procrastinator. I think three all-nighters in a row was my record, a a record I I do not want to ever break. The way I overcame this serious chronic procrastination habit was by applying the methodology that is contained in by far the best resource I've ever seen on overcoming procrastination. It's a book called The Now Habit by a psychologist named Neil Fiore. And I had this book on my shelf for three years before I got around to reading it. So. <laughs> you did have a problem. <laughs> Absolutely. And the reason his approach was so helpful is that, first of all, he defined procrastination a little differently than most people. Instead of putting off to tomorrow what you know you should do today, which has this school-marmish, finger-wagging tone to it, he defines procrastination as a method for coping with the anxiety associated with starting or finishing a difficult task or one we know we're going to be judged on, which is pretty much any project you work on as a lawyer. So he suggested ways to kind of sidestep that anxiety or ways to deal with that anxiety. And the way to do it is to be aware of the five main habits of thought that procrastinators have. And as soon as you realize you're thinking like a typical procrastinator, try to replace it with what the producer thinks instead. I'll go through all five of these aspects. The first aspect is I must. Procrastinators tend to say, I got to do this. I have to do this. Have to get it done. And the truth is, you don't have to do anything as long as you're willing to deal with the consequences of not doing it. So whenever you say, oh, I have to do this, tell yourself, you know, well, would I rather get it done and receive these benefits or not get it done and deal with these consequences? And when you do that cost-benefit analysis, you're choosing which one you want, which underscores that it really is a choice. So whenever you say to yourself, I must, try to replace that with the producer approach, which is, no, I don't have to, but I choose to. The second aspect is procrastinators are focused on the finish line. They say, I got to get it done, got to get it filed, got to get it off my desk. But the problem with that is it's not helpful to focus on the finish line when you're procrastinating in the earliest stages of a project. Focus instead on when can I start? That's the producer mindset. When can I sit down? When can I get this first little task done rather than trying to do it all at once? The next aspect is procrastinators tend to see the forest and not the trees. They say, oh, this project is huge. How can I ever do it all? Whereas producers say, I'll do one small task. And when you start thinking this way, you realize that even enormous projects consist of individual tasks, each of which is fairly simple and straightforward. And if you think of it as just a compilation of lots of little tasks and just focus on that one task that's in front of you at the moment, you'll find that even larger projects become much more palatable. The fourth aspect is procrastinators tend to be perfectionists uh, because they want to have a really good result. But the problem with focusing on the quality level of your work in the initial stages of your work is that you run the risk of painting yourself into the intellectual corner known as the paralysis of perfectionism, which means you're so anxious that the project be really, really good, you're afraid to get anything down on paper for fear it won't be good enough, so you're all freaked out about it, so you don't get anything down, so it's not bad, but it's not good either. It's just not there yet. So the way to deal with that is to realize it's human to, as you're going through any creative process, and most of legal work is is creative, to have some blind alleys along the way, to make some errors as you go. Accept that as an intrinsic part of the creative process, and as long as you do it early in the process and leave time to edit out the mistakes and you know clean things up down the road, it shouldn't be harmful to the ultimate quality level of the final product. The fifth aspect is 
procrastinators tend to say, well, you know, let me clear my calendar so that I can always be working and, you know, fun, rest, exercise, I'll do all that after I'm done working. But the problem with that is when you have nothing on your calendar but the prospect of work, it's a very draining way to look at your your time in your life, and it won't stop you from procrastinating, but it doesn't give you anything that recharges your batteries instead. What you want to do is do what the producers do, which is they say, I must or I choose to make time for rest, for fun, for relaxation, you know, even when I'm busy. It doesn't mean taking the day off and going to the beach the day before a major deadline, but it means getting a reasonable night's sleep. It means having some R&R activities that you look forward to so that you don't go through your day saying, oh, you know, if I don't get it done, I can always stay late tonight. No, have plans that you want to do tonight so you can finish your task during the day, and then during the evening, you're recharging your batteries so that you can come in bright and fresh the next morning and do good work. The problem with clearing your calendar so that you can always be working is you're basically procrastinating on those other parts of life as well, and that, that doesn't seem to work as well. It's the, the work-hard, play-hard approach that tends to work better. Well, speaking of time, we seem to have run out of it, so what's in closing your favorite quick tip for time management? My favorite quick tip is another anti-procrastination technique because I was such a procrastinator that that one technique I described isn't enough. I call this the 15 minutes at a time technique, and this is how it works. You get a countdown timer, set it for 15 minutes, and tell yourself that just for the next 15 minutes, I will work on whatever it is I've been procrastinating on because you can do anything for 15 minutes. And the trick comes into play after 15 minutes when that timer starts beeping. Make a split-second decision as to whether you'll stop because your commitment to yourself was only 15 minutes and you fulfilled that, or whether you'll reset the timer and go for yet another 15 minutes. And I found that invariably, once you get started, after 15 minutes when the timer goes off, you're kind of into it. It's not as bad as you thought. You've kind of broken that inertial barrier so that the temptation to continue will usually override the temptation to stop. And I use this technique all the time, and I usually end up working for far more than 15 minutes, you know, even a few hours at a time. But since I think of it in 15-minute chunks, it doesn't seem overwhelming. Somebody told me once, you know, Meg, that's just a snooze alarm. <laughs> and I'll admit, yeah, it, ha- it has some similarities, but it's, you're using it to be productive rather than to, to put off getting out of bed. Well, since we are focused on time management here, unfortunately, we are out of time. So we've got to conclude this. But Mega, I never don't think I've ever heard so much good information packed into such a short time overall. So thank you so much for being with us. Your insights are just wonderful. And I know that they'll be very helpful to lawyers who struggle so hard to manage their time. Thanks for being with us today. No, thank you for having me, Jim and Sharon. It was a pleasure. And that does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to the Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.